You're listening to Weekend Recap with Pastor Kent Nottingham. To hear the full message and many more, visit calvarytlh.com slash teachings. The book of James, Faith That Works. We're in James chapter 4, verse 7, and today's title is Beware of Overconfidence. Listen, the Lord wants us to be very confident in our salvation. He wants us to know we are sealed for the day of salvation, that our sin, past, present, and future is cleansed away by the blood of Jesus, and it's a continual cleansing. The Lord wants us all to be confident in our salvation and our place with Him in eternity. Have confidence. Have your head up high. But James is warning us about overconfidence. It's a warning about boasting, being cocky, conceited, that leads to arrogance. It's the crossing of a line that hurts the cause of Christ to a lost world. So the first thing I want to cover is the secret of spiritual victory. In verse 7, it says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The key to resisting the devil is to first submit to God. That's important to notice the sequence. You know, people like to quote the second sentence of this verse, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But you have to understand that's not true. The devil is not in the least bit afraid of us. We are powerless against the devil. He has power above and beyond any that we possessed. I mean, before even the fall of man, he was the highest and the wisest and most powerful of all created beings. He's the ruler of countless legions of fallen angels. He's the master of deception. He's had 6,000 years of practice in manipulating the human race. The devil is not afraid of us, and he's not going to flee from us. So we can resist him as much as we like, but he's not going anywhere. Yet, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the scriptures say this, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That changes the equation. Because you see, when we submit ourselves to God... That leaves the devil face-to-face with God. And a great example of that is, of course, when Jesus was in the wilderness and he was tempted those three times. Each time he was tempted, Jesus always responded back in submitting to God through his word. And on the third temptation, it says that the devil finally left him. He fled because that's eventually what he's going to do. How often a person leaves off submitting to God? They come at Satan with this overconfidence, with this arrogance, you know, towards the devil, like I'm a king's kid. He has to listen to me. Listen, the devil can face you, Christian, but he has a hard time facing God. And when you submit to God, you are a doer of God. You are a committed person to God and to his ways. You don't just quote the Bible. You actually live what you quote. And a great example of that is in Acts 19, where these sons of Sceva were going around casting evil spirits. And these spirits turned to the sons of Sceva, and they said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And they leaped on them, overpowered them, and wounded them. Jesus they knew, for they know he submits to God. Paul they know, because they know Paul submits to God. But you guys are just words, throwing out Jesus' name like it's some magical formula. And you have no submission at all. It says in verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's pretty simple. We submit in verse 7 and we commit in verse 8. You know, that's the thing. You come in, we come in with a purpose like right now that I'm going to get close to God. I'm going to just submit to God and I'm going to commit myself to God in worship. I want to draw near to him because there's a promise he'll draw near to me. And we come in with a humbleness and and an attitude of submission. We come in like poor in spirit. You know, we're looking at ourselves as sinners, committed and submitted to him. 
and to his goodness and his grace with humility in each and every one of us. But as time goes away, we find ourselves drifting away. And the thing is, as we're drifting away, he's always calling us back. But he doesn't chase after us. Just like the father, the prodigal son, didn't go running into the far country to search for his son. No, he watched and he waited for the son to come to his senses. And when the son came to his senses, he arose and came to his father. And then his father met him. And that's what's so important for us to understand. We draw near to God. He will draw near to us. We have to do make the first move, and he will meet us, and he'll come towards us. So th- it's important that we understand that. If I come into church sort of half-hearted, a little proud, a little arrogant, let's see if God comes through today. Let's see if the message, you know, better be pretty good today. The worship team better play the songs that I like. No, it doesn't work like that. You make God first. You submit to him with a humble heart. You commit to him and what he has for you that day. You draw near to God, not be distant with a conceited attitude that sheds arrogance behind it. Because when a distance grows between God and us, you can be sure God has not moved. But here's the truth. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. That's where we humble ourselves. Our drifting can be an overconfidence in our relationship with God. And that's the secret to spiritual victory. The second one is the secret of brethren victory. It says in verse 11, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. The person who judges another brother or sister in Christ sets himself up as a substitute for the law itself. The law, after all, calls on us to love one another. Jesus says, I give you a new command. Love one another even as I have loved you. So we're commanded, the law, to love one another. We're not to judge. We're not to trample. We're not to slander another brother or sister. When we do so, we actually exempt ourselves from God's law. We say, in effect, that it doesn't apply to our treatment of this brother or sister in this situation that I'm excused from the law's obligation to love them because of something they did or they said that hurt me or is about me. See, that's an overconfidence and an arrogance that actually hurts the cause of Christ. That's where it's all about me and not about them. For it's our love for each other that tells the world that we are his disciples. That's faith that works. That's what Jesus told us. That's the truth that he gave us. Listen, a person's walk and talk have to line up. If their talk seems good, but their walk is not, it's not a good thing. And being involved in ministry for over 35 years, I've been in conversations, and I didn't realize I was getting caught up into these conversations when another brother or sister come up to me and saying, listen, and they come up to me with a real humble heart. Hey, can I talk to you about something? I want to see if I'm wrong here, because I could be wrong. So would you tell me if I'm wrong or not? And then they start just blasting another brother or sister. And then they stop and go, am am I wrong for thinking that? This is what they did to me. And and it's like, am I wrong? Did I do something wrong? And and they have this very passive-aggressive tone that seems to be humble, but it's actually a false humility. And they just keep ripping and keep ripping. And they always end the conversation with, well, you know that I love them. (laughs) No, your talk and your walk do not line up. Your tongue speaks blessings and curses. You are double-minded. You put yourself above God's law. There's an overconfidence, an arrogance. I can do this. Your talk and your walk are not the same. Beware of boasting. Beware of conceitedness. All under the cloak of passive-aggressive false humility. The third thing is this. The secret to dependent victory. 
It says in verse 13, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such place and city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It's even a vapor. Appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. We are told that we can make our plans, we can have a purpose, there's nothing wrong with that. If you have a business idea, nothing wrong with that. Go, but to do it without the Lord is all wrong. We should say, all of us, if the Lord wills, then we go to this city and do this thing for this purpose. You see, God's will is eternal, it's forever. Yours and my will is eternal and forever too, especially when we come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior us willing to follow Christ or us willing not to follow Christ, that's going to travel with us all through eternity. And we know God's will is always right, but my will is not always right. So you don't want to, you don't want to gamble that at all. A sure bet is God's will is always right. Mine is not. So we want to move and function in what the Lord wills, not what I will. So there's a right and a wrong way to plan. The wrong way to plan is to leave God out then you are just guessing. The right way to plan is to pray about it. Have a conviction in your heart. Have the word behind it. Make your plans based on that you prayed about it. You have God's word behind it. You have a conviction on it. You got a peace about it in your heart. That's the right course to put yourself on. And then as you proceed, you say as the Lord wills, because it might unfold differently than you plan. God may alter it. He may change it. He may interrupt it. You just let it play out as the Lord leads. It's a dependence completely on God. You see, the Bible says man makes his plan, but God gives it direction. And here's what's happened to me in life that I have failed to see, that my plan is not always his purpose. You see, God's purpose will succeed. Thus, my plans must be put to the side because his purpose overrides it. You know, I will take that phrase that you might hear me say, hey, here at Calvary, I got, here's our vision for this next year. I'll give you a scriptural basis for it. I prayed about it. I got a peace about it. But I have to say, but as the Lord wills. I have to say that because so many times I thought I knew the will of God. But I've learned you plan, but you allow God's purpose to go front and center. God has given me and you the ability to plan. He actually wants me as a pastor to plan. He says in the Bible, people without a vision perish. So I'm responsible to give the people in the church a vision. So I have to plan. I have to give you a vision. But God may change it. God may alter it according to his purpose as the Lord, you know, wills. When he does, listen, it's always better than what we had envisioned to be anyway. My plan can be so small. God's purpose can be so large and so gigantic. It's great when we see that. So don't just sit on your hands and do nothing for you're afraid it might not be his will. That's not what he's saying right here. It might not be his will, but God does honor faith. That's a good thing because it says in verse 17, therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So to not move in faith, which is a good thing, whether it's his will or not, is actually sin. Just move, plan, and let God be in your plan. It's easier to steer a car that is moving than one that is standing still. Get moving, and God will guide you. God will steer you. It's so much harder for him to steer somebody who's just doing nothing 
at all. It's a good thing to plan. And fourth and finally, the secret to generous victory. Now, these six verses are very hard, yet James is not talking about the church here. He's talking mostly about the Pharisees and the religious leaders that are in Jerusalem. Thus, he's talking to the church about these people. He says in verse 1 of chapter 5, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. And so these people were defrauding others. They were corrupt. The rich controlled the courts. We watch our news, and you get as much justice as you can afford in some cases. They control the economy. They control everything at the expense of crushing others, especially the poor under their feet. Listen, these verses that follow verse 1 explain what it is they are being judged of. It's not having wealth. They're not being judged for having wealth because, you know, there are a lot of people in the Bible who are very, very wealthy like Abraham and Job. God does not put that down. But rather, what is done and not done with the wealth is the lack of generous giving. And James highlights three particular sin traits, and it's important for us to check ourselves against them. The first one is hoarding. He says, your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. He says, your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasures in these last days. So this is a picture of massive waste, of lavish possessions left to rot like luxury foods that have never been eaten and now never will be, clothing that's become moth-eaten, expensive jewelry has corroded, all of it was amassed for its own sake. The owner, it seems, never wanted to use it. They just wanted to have it. And listen, we live in a society where accumulation is seen as good in its own right. Amassing money and possessions is commended in our culture. It's one of the ways that we as a culture measure someone's success in life. The more you have, the better you have done. Unfortunately, some people are for, 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 unfortunately, these things for some people are just a matter of pride for them. But hoarding for its own sake, James is telling us, is ungodly. And listen, this is not to say Christians are wrong to save for the future or to contribute to a pension plan. But as James has just showed us, we are not, you know, we don't know the future. Saving is not ungodly. It is for a godly purpose, such as providing for ourselves so that we're not a burden on others and providing for others being givers. Wealth is to be used, not amassed. Money's a tool, not an idol. The second one is injustice. It says in verse 4, Indeed, the wages of the labor has moved from fields, which you kept back by fraud, cried out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath, or the Lord of hosts. We read about sweatshops today, the number of immigrants that are taken advantage of in promises of being citizens and how much they have to work that off as they are suppressed. Companies moving overseas, they can pay less, no medical coverage for employees, all for more money. God condemns that. There are people suffering at the hands of the rich, all for the purpose of getting richer. It's an injustice. And the last one is extravagance. In verse 5, it says, You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. James is not saying we cannot enjoy the good things of this world that God has given us. That is a denial of the goodness of our Creator God and of what He has made. 
But James is talking about an ungodly attitude that sees ourselves as the center of everything. The goal in which a life is to be pampered, you know, all the time, where we just pamper ourselves. But as with all good things, wealth is to be used in the service of others, not in the service of self. Once again, wealth is to be used, is to be used. We're to be those who give. God wants us to be givers to others, givers to him, and how we show our appreciation in what we have come by the way of God. So sum all this up. God would have us to be confident in our walk and our salvation and being heaven-bound, no doubt about it. But he would never want us to cross the line in boasting in riches. To cross over leads to hoarding, injustice, extravagance. It's a conceitedness. The thing is, he would have us learn also the secret to generous victory. But also he wants us to know the secret to dependent victory. Man makes his plans, but God gives it direction as he wills. He wants to know the secret to brethren victory in God, never to have an arrogance of being above the law of God and slandering, judging a brother or sister in Christ. To be over the law is to be over God. And the last one, the secret to spiritual victory. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Commit to God in drawing near to him, and he will draw near to you. So the conclusion, stay humble. We can if we learn the secret to avoiding overconfidence.